the more complex an economy or a society gets, the more impossible it becomes to mm. plan anything from the top down because politicians cannot have all of the knowledge necessary to make decisions for an entire society or an entire economy. Most economic knowledge that exists is dispersed, it's complex, and it's local. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Tim, welcome back to the Better Wealth Podcast. Hey, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Episode 78 was when you first came on. I had the honor and pleasure of speaking at one of your events. I'm excited to, to make another appearance at, at a yeah. platform mastermind. And so, so, so many things that we talked about then. We talked about value creation, talked about your story, talked about you convincing your brother to drop out of college to, to come work with you. And you're one of my favorite people to talk to because I always mentally challenged and stimulated when it comes to our conversations. Um, you know a ton about politics, about money, about entrepreneurship, about marketing, and you can communicate in such a way where people can disagree with you and you're not like, you're not one of those guys that are just there to pick a fight, but you're like very, very well read. Um, spending time with you in one of your um, places in Naples was, was a lot of fun. I got to see just a fraction of the books that you guys have and uh, it's an honor to just have you on here and talk about a lot of different topics. I know that we're going to talk about the knowledge uh, gap and just the the problem, I would say, um, yep. around that. And then, I mean, I, I love talking to you about your views about money, where the economy's at, inflation, and so all that's to come. But how are you doing, man? Good, good. I wish the world we were living in was a little bit less crazy, but I guess that makes things interesting and it makes for good uh, good talking points on podcasts like this one, right? That just how absolutely nuts the world has been um, yeah. in the last year or so with COVID and all of the economic policies that have been in, you know, implemented since all that started from, from both parties, to be clear. But uh, crazy, crazy times we live in, man. It's interesting when people are like, oh, that's not like what the that's not what you should do. Or that's like, that's like, they read like personal finance blogs and they're like, no, that's not what everyone does. Or that's horrible. And you look at what the average person does. It's like, are we seriously wanting average? Because you just look around at family, like at health, like it's, it's insane, man. And it's very, it's very frustrating. Um, before we got on, I know that you're, you have a lot of, of, of thoughts around the knowledge problem. What is that even, and why does it why does it matter in two thousand twenty one, in where we sit right now? So, because public schools suck so bad, <laughs> not teaching this, but it's actually one of the most important insights of all economics in the twentieth century. Is there was this economist, his name was F. A. Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, and he won the Nobel Prize by the way in nineteen seventy four for economics. So this isn't some like fringe, lunatic, weirdo, right-wing extremist economist. Like the dude won a Nobel Prize in economics, right? And one of his central insights in his career uh, came back in actually uh, 1945, and he mm -hmm. published an essay called The Use of Knowledge in Society. You can go on Google and just search for it. I think that FEE has it on their website. Um, FEE is the Foundation for Economic Education. So it's the, uh, the essay was called The Use of Knowledge 
in society. Again, it's like 75 years old. So it wasn't like this recently came out five years ago. So we should have known about this, right? And in this essay, he introduced what has since then kind of been called the knowledge problem. And it's why government planning fails so miserably and why politicians, even if you think they're smart politicians, even if they have the smartest teams and the smartest administrations with all the graduate degrees from MIT and Harvard and everything, it's why politicians consistently fail over and over and over again uh, to implement anything remotely resembling a good outcome when they spend money. Because the more the more complex, this is this is essentially what the knowledge problem is. The more complex an economy or a society gets, the more impossible it becomes to mm-hmm. plan anything from the top down. Because politicians cannot have all of the knowledge necessary to make decisions for an entire society or an entire economy. Most economic knowledge that exists is dispersed, it's complex, and it's local. There's really no such thing as saying the economy of the United States. That's the first insight you need to realize. Like, There's no such thing as the economy of the US, right? We're talking about hundreds of millions of people interacting together. You know, it's not a simple graph. It's really more of like a neural network with hundreds of millions of nodes in that network. Yeah, and and there's a difference between New York and Minnesota. Well, not only is there a difference between New York and Minnesota, there's a difference between Queens versus Harlem versus the Bronx versus Manhattan, you know, versus Brooklyn. I mean, like the economy is so fragmented and distributed and decentralized in a in a good way. Right. That's a good thing that the more complex the economy gets, the more impossible it becomes for some politician in Washington, D.C. to possibly have even a fraction of the information it would take at any given moment to make top down decisions that are going to be good for everyone in that economy. So the more decentralized decision-making becomes because a local entrepreneur is taking advantage of local insights, the more decentralized things are, the more smoothly that economy is going to operate. So really the key insight of this, of this knowledge problem from Hayek is that it's not that politicians are bad people or that they're stupid people. And I would probably argue most of them are bad and stupid people, but Hayek's point is that that's actually irrelevant, yeah. right? Most arguments against progressives and you know top-down planners, most arguments against government and politicians are often moral arguments. Yep. They're philosophical arguments of like, how dare they take our money and taxes? How dare they tell us how to live? They're moral arguments that often get emotionally sticky, right? Because yep. some people like big government, you know, some people don't. And if you're arguing in moral terms, it's only going to make people even more pissed off. Because ultimately, if you don't agree with my philosophy, there's really nothing I can say to change your mind on moral issues, right? Just like abortion, right? What anyone thinks about abortion, I've never seen anyone change someone's mind by appealing to logic because both sides think that they have logic on their side. And the reality is, well, if you're arguing morality, it comes down to what are your moral principles? So that's what you have to talk about. Hayek's genius is when he looks at all of the problems of an economy, like supply chain disruptions, um, inflation, these, you know, quote unquote, targeted COVID relief funds, where it's like, hey, we printed these trillions of dollars for COVID, yeah. Yeah. right? And he, he looks at all that, 
And his genius is recognizing that no matter what you think of morality and philosophy, government spending and government programs don't work because the politicians planning them don't have all this decentralized knowledge that random local people have. Not only do they not have that decentralized knowledge, they can't have it. Right. It's impossible to have it. No human could ever have the distributed decentralized knowledge that let's say a um, random local sawmill in South Dakota might have about the price of lumber there and what it costs to build houses there, or the minimum wage is a really good example, right? When they talk about having a $15 minimum wage in DC, that maybe makes sense to the politicians who live in a high, high cost of living area that, hey, you can't survive here if you're not making $15 an hour. And Hayek's genius, again, with this knowledge problem, is that when most people debate an issue like the minimum wage, they're debating the morality of, is that even a living wage? Can you provide for a family on $15 an hour or you know whatever? Yep. Hayek bypasses all that. And he says, hey guys, let's just not have an emotional, moral argument because we'll probably just end up hating each other more if we debate morality. Let's talk about the practical economics of a minimum wage, right? If you top down mandate, let's say a national $15 an hour minimum wage, you're completely disregarding the local lived experiences of people in different areas that are different, right? So if you grow up in rural South Dakota, $15 an hour might be way more than enough to live off of because you can rent a place for $450 a month, right? right? Things are cheaper. You can go out to eat and get a plate of breakfast at a local diner for four bucks, right? Right. If you live in Manhattan or you live in DC or you live in the Bay area or you live in Seattle or Austin or some of these really expensive, you know, areas, Denver, right? Like then, yeah, I totally see how $15 an hour is hard, is hard to make it, but like to have a one size fits all policy that treats an expensive cost of living city like Denver, the same way as a small town in Mississippi, it's, it's, it's insane really. And so Hayek's insight here was that not only do politicians not have that knowledge, there's, there's, there's no way that they have all of the local complex decentralized knowledge of what things cost in different areas and what energy prices are and how the local economies are doing. Because you know, you mentioned Minnesota. Like, there's towns in Minnesota that are doing well. There's town, small towns in Minnesota that are not doing well. Same right. thing in Colorado. Same thing in Florida. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can't even really talk about the Florida economy or the Minnesota economy or the Texas economy because every local town is different. Right. right? Like, economies really only exist locally. So even when we talk about the American economy, that's just this incredibly hard to define abstraction that for all intents and purposes doesn't really exist. Right. All economics is local, just as they say, all real estate is local, right? So if you're attempting to make top-down decisions, it's going to fail almost by definition. Again, Hayek's insight here with this knowledge problem is that not only do politicians not have this knowledge, even if they were the smartest politician who's ever lived they can't have this knowledge because most of this knowledge is so decentralized. It only exists at the local level. You know, they say, uh, they say in economics that a price, right. Is a piece of information wrapped in an incentive. That's what a price is. So 
when I see that uh, gas, let's say, let's say the gas went up to $5 a gallon, right? A price is information wrapped in an incentive. When, when gas goes to $5 a gallon, right? It's not just that I know that, okay, it takes $5 worth of my labor to buy a gallon of gas. It also is a piece of information, you know, to resource producers like, Hey, it's a really high price. There's a scarcity of this thing. Now go make more gas, right? right? It's telling them it's telling them to do that. Right. So if you politically plan an economy from the, from the top down and you institute in, you know, recent times, all of these COVID regulations and government programs, you're completely distorting the natural markets of price. And now no one knows what to do because prices are information. Like right. economists understand this because they're nerds. The average American doesn't understand that prices are essentially just information, right? And so when you distort prices, you're not only you know doing questionably moral things, right? But you're completely distorting right. uh, the information needed to make economic decisions. So let's look at COVID, right? Like let, let's look at what they've done with the housing market and the uh, eviction and you know rent moratoriums where like you can't kick someone out if they're not paying rent anymore right yeah so completely and, and by the way i want to say from a moral issue yeah you can get behind that it's like we we shouldn't kick people out if they're on hard times but like i'm mean, you're going to unpack how horrible of a rule that was and and the ripple effect that that can have if someone loses their job because an idiot politician makes it illegal to go to work I feel for them, right? Because I think there's really two classes in this country and we've seen in the last year. It's the Zoom, it's the Zoom class yeah. that can afford to just work remotely. And they're like, oh, you dumb peasants, just do your job at home. You'll have to just work from home. And they don't like they're so insulated in their social bubbles mm-hmm. that they don't realize it's like, dude, like the majority of Americans can't do their job from home. Right. If you're a commercial fisherman or a construction worker or a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician or uh, frankly a school teacher or a massage therapist or a restaurant worker waiter waitress i could go on right there's most jobs in the us cannot be done remotely over zoom like if you figure out a way to build houses over zoom calls let me know cuz we can make a shit ton of money together but most jobs have to be done in person it's this pretty small minority of lucky Americans that, you know, like you and like me, frankly, that can do our jobs for the most part over a computer remotely. And so when they shut down all these industries and sectors, like, trust me, I feel for those people. I think it's profoundly unfair that they were not allowed to go to work and have the dignity of earning a living and working every day. And instead the politicians, you know, just said, oh, you peasants, here's $1,200, you know, and they act as if that's going to make things okay. So I get it. A lot of people lost their jobs through no fault of their own. That is right. not their fault, right? But you know whose fault it's also not? The landlords. Who, right. if they're renting a house from this person, that landlord probably has a mortgage on the house too. Right. And so if he all of a sudden can't collect rent anymore, he's just going to be financially devastated or she's going to be financially devastated because they were relying on that income Yep. to pay the mortgage on that uh, on that house, right? And so there's, an, a, there's a crazy shortage of inventory in the real estate market across the country right now. So what we do at Platform, just so everyone knows, is I'm not just a hobbyist here. I run 
a marketing agency that primarily works with real estate agents around the country. So part of what I do is I'm constantly looking at housing market trends across the country. Like this is what I do full time is my job, right? And so there's a massive shortage of inventory um, across the country. There's simply not enough homes for sale, right? right? There's way too many people who want to buy a house right now and not enough homes for sale. And man, oh man, if Hayek was alive to see this today, he would just be going on a tear about the knowledge problem. I promise you. Because <laughs> this is an example of politicians trying, like I'm going to give politicians the benefit of the doubt that I think a lot of them think they're doing the right thing. They're not necessarily always evil people with bad intentions right. that are being bribed by lobbyists, right? A lot of this, it is good intentions, but on one side, you have politicians that uh, are saying, hey, like we don't want people going to work because they might get COVID. So let's just, you know, keep them at home. And that's everything from like people making drywall in manufacturing facilities to people making flooring to right. the logging industry up in Canada. I drove up through the Yukon in British Columbia a couple of years ago on an epic road trip to Alaska. And I saw all the logging industry firsthand because I drove all the way up through that. I think it was a 50 hour drive to get wow. to Alaska. I started in Bozeman, Montana. I saw all the logging up there. That's a major part of their economy. All that was shut down for the last year. And so if you have no new timber coming down to build houses with, there's no, you know, countertops being manufactured, plumbing fittings, flooring. What that means is that even though there is demand to build more houses in the U.S., there's no raw materials. Right. Right. Because they, they physically aren't making them because politicians ordered them not to. Right. And so in a normal functioning free society, what would happen is when prices for housing have gotten absolutely out of control in the last couple of years. I mean, government's trying to tell you that inflation is 4% or 5%, which is like, frankly, hilarious, right? Like that anyone even like that, that a politician like Jerome Powell, you know, at the Fed can say that with a straight face and not start laughing. I think like he should go be a comic on SNL. Well, if most people don't even know what inflation is. So you can say yeah. whatever you want to say. And yeah. Yeah. Like if, if anyone thinks inflation is four or 5%, yeah. like that's hilarious to me. Like try telling that to someone who's tried to buy a house in the last year and right. the house in the market they're trying to buy in is 30 or 40% or even 50% more expensive. So right. in a free society, what we've seen in the last year if a price of a product like a house was 40% more expensive, what would happen? Well, again, a price in economic terms, a price is, a, is just a piece of information. That's right. Wrapped in an incentive. Right. When you uh, restrict an economy or a society from freely flowing information, right. you know, when you have all these government programs, you're not just stopping that one industry. You're actually stopping the free flow of information through through an economy. So almost indirectly, there's like a First Amendment case that you shouldn't economically plan an economy because it's almost like economic version of, of free speech. But in a free society, if the price of something increased by 40%, it would be a very strong piece of information, again, wrapped in an incentive to whoever's manufacturing that thing let's make a lot more of this because we can make a killing if the price is just increased by 40%, right? But because government restricts that from happening, now you have yeah. the price of housing increased by 40%, right? And interest rates, another 
piece of information that is completely, you know, manipulated by politicians are being artificially held yep. at all time lows. And you get this, oh, cool. Low interest rates mean cheap money that bids up the price of low inventory housing even more. It just makes the problem way worse. This right. would never happen in a free society or a free economy because the market would balance itself out. So even as we talk about interest rates, I know that's a very common uh, common topic on your show because we're often talking about the and asset right. and you know the uh, the uh, impact of the cost of capital and the cost of borrowing over your life and you know the bond markets and capital markets and all that. Once you understand Hayek's knowledge problem, so again, I highly recommend everyone go on Google, type in the use of knowledge in society, read that essay. It's not like a hundred pages long, right? Read the essay, the use of knowledge in society, and all of a sudden you will understand from a practical perspective, not a philosophical perspective or a moral perspective, but from a practical perspective, why the Federal Reserve and politicians planning interest rates is so suicidal for an economy because yep. it makes it impossible for producers to actually match their production schedule and their business planning with the reality of the levels of demand that exists in an economy, right? Mortgages, with 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 this crazy of a lending environment and all the demand there is, there is no way that in a free society, mortgage interest rates would be three percent right now. Yeah, there is no way they would be three percent. You know, housing prices would probably come down a ton if the government wasn't subsidizing, you know, yep. mortgages so much. Like housing prices might come down 10, 20, 30 percent, and that sounds awful. Yep. Until you realize that, oh, cool, now it's actually way more affordable to buy a house. And if your savings account in a free market is paying you, let's say, 5% versus 0%, right. right? it would be a lot easier to save money for that down payment if a simple savings account was earning 5%, because it probably means a more aggressive portfolio of bonds or something like the AND asset might be paying you 8 9 10% right. a year. And so- when politicians restrict prices or they manipulate prices or they print a bunch of money and give it to a certain industry as part of a COVID program, right? That is manipulating prices too. The big takeaway is in practical terms, they're manipulating information in the market that distorts future production. So it almost guarantees the market will remain out of balance longer than it otherwise would have because no one has the proper information to make a decision. It's almost like if I was thinking about buying a company and let's say Caleb, that you were thinking about selling better wealth to me. Right. And I was like, Hey, you know, I think I want to buy that company. I think Caleb is doing a horrible job running it. I think there's this incredible asset value there that he right. is not extracting. It's a good brand, but Caleb is just a terrible business person, I'm going to buy this company from Caleb and I'm going to make it what it should be. And so I get into talks with Caleb and we're negotiating about what it might look like if I bought you out of better wealth. Right. And then you say, well, I'm not going to give you any of the financials of the business. You'll just have to guess what you think it's worth. Or maybe you give me one part of the financials, like you give right. me a balance sheet, but not Offline revenue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. or maybe you show me the cash flow statement and not the balance sheet. So it looks like right. there's tons of cash flowing in, but who knows? Maybe it turns out you have tons of debt that I'm not aware about. Right. Yeah. It's crucial to making any decision that you have full information, or at least I shouldn't say full information, that you have as much information 
as you can get at any given time right. to, make it, to make a decision. So it would be impossible for me to negotiate a good, fair purchase price if I was buying your business, if I don't know what the financials are of that business. And Hayek's other insight with the knowledge problem too, is that it's not even specific numbers data because a lot of information is kind of qualitative information right. that can't really be expressed on a spreadsheet. It can't be data because it's qualitative. So like, for example, I mean, yeah, you could use a net promoter score or something, but that's always a proxy of like, what do people feel about the brand of Better Wealth? If I was about to buy your company, do your customers and clients like you? Do people in the industry like you? Do you have good, are you getting referrals? Like you can't really capture that on a spreadsheet. So much of the information that on a day-to-day basis we use to make decisions is qualitative information that can't really be expressed using numbers in an Excel spreadsheet, right? So it's all that local decentralized information that Hayek is talking about that politicians can't possibly know that qualitative stuff because they can't even track the quantitative stuff. Right. Right. So if I was buying your business, I mean, if I got lucky, I might pay a fair price, but it's almost guaranteed that if you don't give me information, I'm either going to overpay like crazy, which is usually what happened to usually what happens to political programs, right. To solve a problem, it might cost hundred million dollars and politicians pay a trillion dollars for it. Right. Yeah. Or, I could have done it way cheaper, but I'll never know because you're not sharing, you're not sharing that information with me. What's the concept of it's easier to spend other people's money than your own. And I kind of feel like that's in politics. We printed how many trillions this last year? I mean, it depends on what study you look at and what, what money has already been spent versus just allocated in budgets, but somewhere between five and $10 trillion. I think 80% of all us dollars that have ever been created were created in the last two years. That's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Cause if you remember just a couple of years ago, how up in arms conservatives were about Obama spending all this money and then Trump spent all this money. It's like, well, the Biden administration has like put the pedal down on the floor in terms of how much money they're printing. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, it, but like, let's talk about real quick. Cause I want to wrap this up soon. Why is that problematic when people print money? Like I want people to understand this because again, this is not, uh, political statement, but it's universally, if you want to be wealthy, you have to understand how the economy works and our dollar is essentially debt. If you think about it and it's crazy, the fact that the government printed five to $10 trillion in the last year. So it's, it's problematic, Caleb, because there's an obvious moral argument of if you print money, you're screwing over savers because if I've saved money and now there's way more money in existence. I'm not earning any yield on my savings. That's actually something my mom is running into right now. My mom was a small business owner growing up. She saved a lot of money. She's never had a high paying job in her life. In fact, right now she's just a accountant working somewhere. I think she makes about $50,000 a year, but she's actually saved up for retirement a million dollars. She's technically a millionaire, but she's never had a high paying job in her life. She did it the old fashioned way, just savings and not spending more than she made. And yet, I would argue this is a moral problem when they print money because yeah. if you have a million dollars saved and you can only risk-free earn two or 3%, that's 20 or $30,000 a year. You can't afford to retire. That's not fair because if she has to wait 10 years for interest rates to come up, well, she might be dead by then, right? Yeah. So well, there's a moral it, argument there. It's a tax without 
the politics of tax. Like they can print money. They're they're for sure taxing us, but it's not like, oh, everyone, no one's freaking out when you print more money. They will freak out when you raise the taxes, but it's the same thing. Absolutely. And the devaluation of our dollar. Absolutely. That's the moral argument. Yeah. Now, where, where Hayek comes in, which I just think is so interesting, is he makes a practical argument against politicians doing anything that kind of micromanages an economy. Printing money is just one example of that. So the practical argument against it is that when there's all these new dollars just flooding into the economy and sloshing around in the economy. And I mean, even this year with COVID, you see some used cars cost more than new cars. You know, I mean, like the the capital markets don't even know what to do with all this money flowing in. And so Hayek's argument is that, yes, there's probably some moral arguments against all this, but from an economic uh, practical perspective, it makes it damn near impossible to plan for the future when information is as distorted as it is. Like you don't actually know. It's like, will interest rates be higher or lower in the future? Will my expenses go go up or down. I mean, historically in an industry like housing, you know, it's kind of straightforward because like you can forecast what the population growth of an area is. You build houses. It's all based on raw material extraction, you know, getting wood from timber and, you know, like shingles and everything. Like there's nothing rocket science about building houses that you should be able to plan a year or two in advance in terms of ordering materials, knowing what your costs are, locking in contracts for things like that. And now look at how impossible it is when prices are changing literally every week and every day because of how much politicians are shutting down this sector. Hey, no more timber from Canada or no more imports of steel from from China. And it makes it impossible to plan. So they have to err on the side of obviously overcharging for everything. So I feel like the last two years has basically been a crash course in what Hayek tried to warn us about back in 1945 with this essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society. It's just not surprising to me when politicians go out and spend trillions of dollars. Like, well, of course it's gonna be inefficient. Of course it's gonna distort the economy because it's not that the politicians are bad people. It's that Hayek tried to show us over 75 years ago, it's impossible from an informational perspective for any politician in any situation anywhere at any time in history to ever have the information to make these decisions. What do you think the breaking point is going to be? Like, when do you think people are going to be like, oh my goodness, like there's no turning back or like, or because what frustrates me, I have a good saving behavior. I'm conservative with my money and I'm ready to go. So COVID hit, we did well, but I would have crushed it if the government just didn't like shell out money kind of deal. And again, it's tricky because they shut people down we could have an argument. Can you shut people down, not give them something? It's like, it's like right. I, I'm under the, why are we shutting the economy down kind of deal? But they, then they print a bunch of money and it's, it's almost frustrating to me. Cause it's like, I semi wanted there to be some amazing opportunities yeah, so that so I could have good buying opportunities, practice what I preach. The problem is that's not what happened. And so you kind of have like that FOMO. When is it going to hit the fan? Cause everyone says the market is going to crash all this stuff. I don't know if it is, by the way, because it's like we keep on printing money. It's like, is the is the solution just putting your money in, like just playing the game, or do we see it correcting? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think shit will hit the fan 
when things from an economic perspective, anyways, when things get to the point that virtuous behavior is no longer incentivized because the politicians will have destroyed the price signals in the economy so much so that when information, again, a price is information wrapped in an incentive and in in economic terms, that's what a price is. When the prices of things get so distorted, and by the way, even people's salaries and the hourly wage they get paid, that's a price. At any given time, if a gas station is now paying $18 an hour because they need people that bad, a price is information wrapped in an incentive. What that price is telling people who live in that community where gas stations are paying $18 an hour is that there's a shortage of workers here you should come apply here because we're willing to pay you a lot more than this job may may or may not be worth, right? right. Because we need people that badly. So right. shit will hit the fan when in the overall economy, things get so bad to where there's no longer any connection between making virtuous decisions and actually having an economic payoff. So I think it's getting pretty close to where people yeah. like you or me, like, We've tried to run lean, efficient businesses. We've tried to save up capital so that we have, you know, we have some ammo, right? When we see buying opportunities to go buy that business or buy that piece of property or buy, right. buy even like an index fund if the market collapses, whatever, right? right? But it's getting to the point where the politicians are so micromanaging things that it's like, well, if they never allow the stock market to correct, then the buying opportunity will never come. And then why would I bother saving money? Or right. they won't yeah. allow a foreclosure crisis to happen because they don't want a repeat of 2008. And then they basically create a self-fulfilling prophecy because right. why would anyone invest in building more rental units and being a right. landlord? Exactly. If you've, now, if you've now set the precedent that- Think about this. I, snap of the fingers you can't collect rent anymore exactly that's like exactly and that is like that just hit me where uh, that's a perfect example of where government regulation can totally hurt the economy because you're you're out of morally you don't want the smith family to get kicked out of their home but as a result you don't care at all about the the slumlord the landlord whatever and it's just it is it is insane man that's when I think things will get bad and maybe that'll be the yeah. turning point if there is one. The uh, politicians just completely erase the link between virtuous behavior, you know, saving money, not spending more than you make, right. um, and actually positive economic outcomes. And I'm telling you, it's getting pretty close to that point. Because if you have a lot of money right now, it's like, where do you put it? Yeah, There's nowhere that's earning you a decent, even remotely risk-adjusted yield and now, obviously, you're a big fan, I know, of, you know, using right. life insurance as a strategy in the end asset, but like- it's not as an look, investment. Yeah, exactly. Like when you, when you look at, you know, inflation and the opportunity cost of capital, it's like, let's be honest, there's really no great place to put your money. There's places right. where you can earn higher returns. You know, you look at opportunity zones and private right. equity and things like that. But with that comes a lot more risk. Right. Historically, yeah. there's yeah. always been places that- Here's, here's probably the most straightforward way I can say it, right? Historically, there's almost always been places you could park your money long-term and earn a reasonable 4 or 5% return with almost zero risk. And if you wanted to make 8 or 9 or 10%, then of course, you could risk your money in equities and more aggressive investments. But historically, if you wanted to play the game slow and you, you wanted to be the turtle in the race and you're like, you know what? 
I just want to invest in munis or AAA corporate bonds. Like you could earn four or 5% with essentially zero risk, right? And that meant that the average person, if they just live below their means enough, could save themselves into being a millionaire in right. retirement. You cannot do that anymore. Yeah. That's the problem is the politicians have so distorted the capital markets that no one knows where to put money. Like the smartest people I know don't know where to put their money. It's like, well, I guess I'll just pick the least bad options and I'll try to stay as liquid as possible for opportunities to come. Right. But as so you what said, is, opportunities aren't coming. Right. So what is your wealth 101? Like knowing knowing this, knowing the knowledge problem, knowing that we're we're very much, very much feels like there's just I don't I don't know. I'm not gonna say that there's it's there's a bubble that's ready to pop, but I just there's there's incentives that are getting out of hand and people like you and myself are are a little bit just you're right i don't necessarily know what to do other than just wait um, because i don't necessarily feel good about jumping on a trend let's just say um, because there's no fundamental value in the prices like what the market says it's worth if you actually look at the fundamental you know underlying asset I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect. I'll just say that. Yeah. If, if, if economists are right, that price is information wrapped in a signal. It's like, what yeah. happens if the information is a lie? Right. All of a sudden the price is meaningless. So that's why propaganda and all these political programs are so damaging to the economy, completely independent of your morality of whether you like Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or whatever, when politicians distort the economy, it makes it almost impossible to make long-term investment decisions. So I think the best thing you can do practically is stay as liquid as possible, as flexible as possible, have opportunity or have a keep open, I should say, keep open the opportunities with your capital. So something yeah. like the end asset makes a lot of sense because you can get a little bit of growth, but you're always liquid. You have access right to that capital rather than locking your money in something long-term where you can't get it out or making a huge right. fixed investment in something that if it doesn't work out that, you know, you're up shit Creek without a paddle, right? That would yeah. not be the type of, this is not the type of economy to make major right. fixed, fixed expense or fixed, uh, fixed investment. So stay as, stay as liquid as possible and try to do things where you're killing two birds with one stone. So I always tell entrepreneurs, like if you're in any sort of, business that requires getting customers on a regular basis, think of investing in your email list and investing in building a list of people as an investment in your future, the same way that you might sock away a couple thousand dollars a month into, you know, a retirement account. What if you put that couple thousand dollars a month into building an email list? Because you can write that off just like you can, if you're, you know, putting money in a 401k, like you can write it off pre-tax, but yep. there's value after tax too, because there's something in your business now that that is an asset and that's an email list. Yep. So I would say to give a specific example, if you had like, I don't know, $50,000 to spend and you were a business owner, to me, it might make more sense to spend that $50,000 building an email list, which is a business expense. So you can you know lower your taxable income by maybe 10 or $20,000 that you have to pay in by making that $50,000 investment. And if you're getting emails for, you know, $5 a piece, uh, you know, how many emails would you get for uh, $50,000? That's what, 10, 10,000, 
you could build an email list by 10,000 people that you can monetize in the future and you got the write-off, right? I would be looking at doing things like that rather than, hey, I'm going to put this $50,000 into a commercial real estate deal or I'm going to sink this all into such and such private equity fund or whatever because once you make decisions like that, if you're not right, there's a big cost of being wrong. So I think what happens when politicians micromanage an economy is that it increases the costs of being wrong. Right. And so as entrepreneurs, we need to stay as, uh, as, as flexible as possible and basically go for base hits and stack base hits upon base hits upon base hits rather than swinging for the fences and trying to hit a home run and right. thus. Two things that I want to highlight is identify value. Like value is one of those things that um, it once you get it, you just start seeing like, oh, that would be valuable. Oh, like I would exchange this thing called money or something that I value for that. The other thing is let's measure by cash flow. What I love about the email list concept is that we've talked about this many times. Not only is it a deduction getting email list, but like people on an email list is valuable in the future, whether you're going to write a book, whether you're going to, you know, do a marketing campaign, whether you're going to try to promote workshops or events, like there's, right, whatever. Yep. there's so much value that comes from attention. And, and then it's the ability, the entrepreneur's ability to take that and translate that into future cash flow. Yeah. If, so, if you yeah. own a business, the ultimate way to ethically cheat the tax code is to invest as much money as possible in building an email list because it's a business write-off and yet you're getting, you're taking a write-off for buying an asset. There's no other place in your right. business that you can do that. I mean, if you buy a real estate, you know, if, if you buy a building, you can't write right. off the principal payments as a business expense, only the interest, right. right? This is an example of you being able to write off the principal payments of building an email list that represents a ton of future cash flow. If you're a business owner and you're constantly adding people to your right. database. So that's kind of a contrarian business move that I think makes a lot of sense, especially in such an unstable crazy world like this covid lockdown dystopia that we are all living through there's there's a lot worse investments you could make than that tim is there anything else on your on your mind this has been this has been a fun conversation and I, i'm telling you i'm going to go back to the knowledge problem the use of knowledge in this in society yep. go get it yep. read it give it to your kids to read um, one one easier one easier pamphlet to read if anyone's intimidated by reading a Nobel Prize winning economist is read the essay I Pencil by Leonard Reed. And uh, Leonard Reed used to, uh, I think he ran or managed or something, the Chamber of Commerce in California. Yep. And he, he founded the oldest like libertarian think tank in the world, Fee, the Foundation for Economic Education. Probably right. his most well-known essay he ever wrote in his career was called I, I Pencil. So I comma pencil, like a pencil as in like the thing you use to write with, right? I pencil. And basically the insight there is that when you, I mean, in the, in the context of this discussion about Hayek's knowledge problem, right? No one person knows how to make a pencil. That's how beautiful and magical and complex and miraculous a free society is. That something as simple as a pencil is actually so incredibly complex but all these different supply chains and profit motives and price quotes work together so that the person who manufactures the wood 
knows what to sell the wood for to make a reasonable profit with reasonable risk. The person who goes and gets the graphite and the metal and the rubber for the eraser or whatever they use. And there's all these different pieces that go into a pencil and even the trucks that manufacture the, or the uh, trucks that haul the timber, let's say down from Canada, they have to know what their depreciation schedules are and how long will this truck last? And should we finance it or pay cash? Or, you know, what do we pay the truck drivers and do we need to offer benefits? And when you really start thinking about it, it's incredibly complex, the amount of decisions and informational variables that go into making something as simple as a pencil. Right. If the government started making pencils, they'd probably cost $20 per pencil. <laughs> easily, right? easily. Because they would have, and again, that's, this is Hayek's insight. And this is the insight of iPencil. And it's not because politicians are stupid. It's because it's actually impossible for any one person to have all of that decentralized knowledge in one person's brain. Right. And so if you're intimidated by reading Hayek or reading the use of knowledge in society, just go read that quick essay, iPencil, and it'll really make you think about, wow, now all of a sudden the crazy economy with the COVID lockdowns that we've been in the last couple of years, yeah. a lot of this stuff makes more sense. And also to give a shout out, you should check out Connor Boyack's books. He actually has a kid's book about yeah, yep. the iPencil. Um, and for those of you like me that are uh, horrible readers, go to the kids' kids books uh, that Connor Boyack has written. Um, he talks a lot about amazing principles and i remember reading the eye pencil and saying have you have just, you had uh connor yes. on the i'm gonna get him back on but yeah okay, cool, i had him cool. on and he's, just he's actually in the middle right now of launching a television show for kids like an animated cartoon on on the tuttle twins and i actually got to see a sneak peek of the first like 20 minutes of the awesome. first episode it's actually really really good it's awesome like, it's it's awesome. So you've got to have Connor back on and talk okay. about that because that's a that's a super cool project he's working on. Actually, with the uh, with the Harmon brothers, if you're familiar with the Harmon yep. brothers uh, ad, ad agency. So, amazing. Um, yeah. Anyways, go read Use of Knowledge in Society and read I Pencil by Leonard Reed. Amazing man. Uh, how can people stay connected in what you're doing and just support your ability to continue to live a free life and start read and share a fraction of knowledge that you have. Follow me on Facebook, Tim Shermack, T-I-M-C-H-E-R-M-A-K. I have a I have a public page I post all the time. Um, and uh, I try to do a good job just explaining what I'm doing in the world and the trends I see and uh, what I think is going to be happening next, not just in the economy, but also in culture. So just follow me on Facebook. That's where I post pretty much pretty much every day. Follow Tim before he gets deplatformed. From yeah, Facebook. exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate you. All right, cool. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.